1: Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell.
0: Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host, Doug Bell, and today we're going to be talking about the importance of trust-building conversations and how to use them. Joining us is Chris Beal, who is the CEO at Connect & Sale, based in Silicon Valley, which is the world's only technology that gets your best salespeople 10x more live conversations with qualified prospects every day. And today, Chris and I are going to be talking about using trust-building conversations. Okay, here's my conversation with Chris Beal, the CEO at Connect & Sell. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Doug, it's great to be here. Well, Chris, I know you've got your own podcast, and I know that you are a busy, busy, busy founder. But I feel like this is a topic that typically folks just sort of miss, which is we're thinking about all the software we have and all the amazing people we hire, And we're so directed towards making sure that they're hitting the number of outbound emails and making sure there's really good conversations where we push features and functionality out in the marketplace. But sometimes we miss a really important element here, which is how do we build trust in those conversations? So what's the central kind of tenets of trust building and what's the current state of sales organizations now in terms of trust building?
1: Well, I find it fascinating. You know, I've been in the B2B world for 42 years, building companies for about 38 of those years. And I always found myself as the tech guy who was building these big systems and then selling them. You always have to sell them, right? Whether you're building them internally at, you know, Martin Marietta, where I used to work, Lockheed Martin now, or whether you're building them for customers as products, you always have this issue that you have to sell these things. An early discovery for me that has been really emphasized and and pounded into my head over the years is in B2B, somebody isn't risking their money, they're risking their career. When they buy something from you, they're putting it all on the line. And we don't think about that much as salespeople. We think, oh, I've got a number to make. I want to get this transaction to happen. The fit is great. I'm going to make, you know, I'm ethical. I'm going to make sure that it's all good but we don't really think about the fact that we lose to no decision. We lose to that famous competitor called do nothing almost every time for a simple reason. And that is we don't get to the needed trust threshold for a B2B buyer to risk their career. And that threshold is really clear. A B2B buyer has to trust the seller more than they trust themselves with this decision because the seller's an expert. The buyer can never be an expert to the degree the seller is an expert. And it's not a competition among sellers like, who's I get, who am I going to buy from? It's a competition with the status quo, which has a huge advantage. It worked yesterday. We know the status quo works, and we trust it. We might not like it. We might be you know, able to complain about it, bitch and moan about it, say, I wish it were like this. I wish it were like that. But the fact of the matter is that 23-year-old Ford Excursion that I have out there right now in my garage actually runs and does what I want it to do. And that new Tesla somebody's trying to sell me, I don't know. What if I'm allergic to electricity, right? So when I'm buying for myself, it's easy. I'm risking my money. I can always get my money back. I buy that Tesla, bring it home, or it brings me home. And I realize, you know, I got this kind of chafy itch now from sitting in it. Maybe I'm allergic to electricity. So I go to the doctor and the doctor goes, Hey Chris, you're allergic to electricity. I "I didn't know that could be a thing. He says, well It isn't, but I'm just telling you, you that's why you got this itch, right? I got to dump the Tesla. So I dump the Tesla and I'm out 10 grand because that's how it goes, right? I buy the same Tesla for my company, same 70 grand or whatever it is. And now it ruins everything. It doesn't fit in. We don't have any electricity to charge it with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's my reputation. It's my career. I don't care if I'm the CEO or anybody else. When I buy something for my company, I'm in a high-risk situation. And the threshold for purchase is trust. It's like, I have to trust you, the seller, more than I trust myself with this decision. This is actually how, I think, Anthony Annarino's new book, Elite Sales Strategies, opens with a quote that says, people buy from people they trust to make a decision they don't trust themselves to make. Now, that quote happens to be a quote of me, so it's kind of cheating to bring it in here, but he didn't tell me he was quoting me, so I think I'm good, Right. So that's really the the big issue. And when you work it all the way back and say, well now, what am I competing on the basis of? It turns out my number one competitor is do nothing. And I'm competing on the basis of getting somebody to trust me more than they trust themselves with this decision. So let's go back in time to the very first conversation and ask how long do we have to get trust? And that's an answer that the FBI has worked on with Harvard Business School because they have an issue in hostage negotiation. How long do we have to get trust? And the answer, according to Chris Voss, and I got to ask him at dinner one night, and I was very fortunate to be sitting at the same table at some holiday dinner thing that I didn't want to be at. And until I found out I was sitting with Chris Voss, and I was like, you how I want to be here. And I asked him after, this, I said, Chris, how long do we have to get trust? in a cold call, in a first conversation, in an ambush. And he says, seven seconds. I said, wow, that's interesting. Our research says eight seconds. He says, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. And it's like, well, this guy's serious, right? So then I asked him, well, what do we have to do in those seven seconds? He says, oh, that's easy. We just have to show the other party we see the world through their eye. And we have to demonstrate to them that we're competent to solve a problem they have right now. At which point I thought for a moment, I said, isn't the problem they have right now, me? And he said, bingo, that's why you can never fail in a cold call. As long as you know what to do, you'll get trust every time. So then I, I got lucky. I asked him the question that I hadn't thought of. I hadn't thought of any. You know, a couple of bourbons were involved. And so I, I asked him a key question, which is, once I get trust from, in somebody, they trust me, how long will it last? And he said, oh, it's simple, forever until you blow it. And that changed my entire view
0: of go-to-market. So Chris, I have to say congratulations. You're my first guest. Hundreds of episodes who has drawn a parallel between selling and FBI tactics for hostage negotiation. That is absolutely a first. Thank you for that. But something I want to go back to, you mentioned just out of the gate was the career risk involved in a lot of these purchasing decisions. And I think that I've been in uh, sales and marketing for well north of 25 years now. Chris, I remember the pre-SaaS days. You remember these days when you would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for an application that was Install, in other words, it was servers that you owned. It was very career risking at that point. You were talking about really being on the line if that didn't work, but it took so long to install the software typically, and there were so many things that could go backwards that the career risk was diminished over time. It sort of felt like there was a lot of folks that were involved in that decision. I feel like B2B SaaS, and this is really a question for you, is do you feel like the career risk is the same? In other words, if you don't like the application so much, you could just kind of get rid of it. In other words, how much of the career risk is really at play when we're selling to people?
1: I think it's gotten worse and it's gotten bigger. And the reason it's gotten bigger is the number of integration points, technical integration points, workflow integration points, acceptability and adoption. We never used to talk about adoption in the ERP land. Adoption, what's that, right? This is the system. I used to build ERP systems. This is it. It's adopting you, my friend. You don't get to adopt it. It's taking you home. However, it might take us two and a half years in order to get into a state where it can adopt you. Now we have this major issue around adoption. And in fact, if you ask heads of customer success who are on the line for renewals, what's the big issue? The big issue is the users vote with their feet or with their keyboards, right? They don't use the damn thing. And that's a cryptic signal that comes back very, very slowly. And people fight it. It's like, oh, let's go make them adopt. It's like, if we're going to have to make them adopt, isn't that a bit of a problem, right? And then the number of systems that software has eaten the world, point solutions have actually become more common, not less common, because they're cheaper and faster to write. So the innovation cycle is fast now. You can come up with something. Venture capitalists won't even fund innovation anymore. They'll fund go to market, but they will no longer fund building a product. That's your job in your garage or whatever. Go get it done. It can't cost you very much. Come on, you know, get your fingers on a keyboard, write some code. So now we have hundreds and hundreds. How many point solutions are there in sales and marketing now? It's like 8,000 or something like that.
0: What are the odds these two move work together? So it's according to Scott Brinker, there's more than 11,000. And I think when he first started tracking this, it was less than 200.
1: So, see, I thought there were 8,000 because I hadn't checked since this morning. (laughs) But the issue is, again, I've been building technology for a long time, right? There's a joke phrase in technology. People toss it off as a joke, but it's actually very, very real. There's only a two-bit difference between networking and not working. And the fact is, if two bits can make a difference there, even one bit can make a difference, Imagine now I have two systems that need to come together, one of which is, say, my Salesforce system, right? So between the day I bought Salesforce and now, say six years, eight years, 12 years later, how many changes have been made inside of it? And what percentage of those changes are understood and which of them are vital to the business and which of them just happened? Does anybody know what this field means? So there are required fields in your Salesforce system that nobody knows what they mean? They used to mean one thing and now they mean another. I call that, you know, that's field semantics regimes, changes over time. We still have stuff in our Salesforce system that our chief revenue officer put in in 2012 that I can't figure out how to get rid of, right? there, There's just like, I said, get rid of that thing. It's like, yeah, we can't. So everything that we buy has to work with everything that we have, but we don't know how everything that we have works. And so the failure points are now spread all over the place, and it shows up as lack of adoption or lack of business impact, either one of which puts my career at risk. So the buyers, they have a lower friction of getting a decision made or even just trying something, right? But it's actually much riskier. Now, we see a lot of turnover, and so it's easier to go work somewhere else now. That is true. Your career risk is somewhat encapsulated by the fact that bounded by the fact that you can go, ah, I can walk out the door without taking a single step, especially since COVID. But, you know, if your resume is full of nine-month to year-and-a-half-long stints, once you get up to about five of those, an issue starts to show up in your career, even now. So it's just a risky business, and the more senior a person is, the more politically aware they are. So the more power they have, the less they want to risk what they got.
0: Okay. So we firmly established that really the career risk has gone up as opposed to maybe having gone down over time. And we're saying that, you know, people are selling to people and we're emotional creatures and to build trust, we have seven seconds, right? We have very little time to build trust. So Chris, talk to me about some of the central tenets of trust building when it comes to coaching sales folks. And really, what are you recommending in terms of establishing that trust quickly?
1: I think the most important thing is to recognize the emotional state of the other party at that instant. Like a cold call is an incredibly ballistic act. It's like a golf swing. If you don't set up right, you don't have a hope. You can't recover a golf swing after from a bad grip. Well, actually you can if you're incredibly talented, right? <laughs> bad, bad grip, bad stance, they might be able to hit the ball. But you know that that's because they've learned to get around it. But for most people, in say a cold call, they've got a they've got to set up right. They have to know the emotional state of that other person at each moment, and they have to guide the conversation from one emotional state to another to another to another. The standard approach that folks use is they they assume the emotional state of the other person is that they're pissed off or upset or perturbed or whatever because they were called. It's a cold call, and they assume their own emotional state is fear, so they need to buck up and overcome their fear, usually through some sort of Forward action, right? Sit up, smile, do all that kind of stuff. You know, be strong, right? We are always encouraging these cold callers to be strong. Interestingly, the actual emotional state of a person when you cold call them is fear, their fear of you, the invisible stranger. So in the environment of evolution, the worst thing in the world is the invisible stranger. Those are the people from across the river. We don't like them. Thank God the river is wide and deep, and we don't have to interact with them very much. We know that they're bad, and here's how we know. We paint our faces vertically, and they paint their faces horizontally. These are bad people, right? And God knows what they're eating over there, but it smells funny. And they put a bone in their nose, and everybody knows a bone in the ear is is the thing. Well, when they're invisible, it's nighttime. Most of us nowadays don't even realize where our fears really come from. I'm an old mountaineer. I spend a lot of time out in the wilderness doing stuff, and often with no light. So you have the light of the moon and that's it. Your whole world changes at night with regard to your fear profile. It's just scarier. It's scarier to walk around in the woods at night than it is to walk around in the woods in the day. That's all there is to it. Well, when it's dark, you can't see people. They're invisible. And when they're strangers and they show up at night, they're not here to bring you a Bud light. They're here to change the demographics of your village suddenly and violently. We don't like it. Well, when we co-call somebody, we are the invisible stranger and they're afraid of us. And that's the most important thing to know is, A, that's true, and B, it's great. It's actually fantastic because you know what state they're in. And if you can relieve their fear, and you can actually tell when it's relieved, they'll chuckle. When When fear goes away, people laugh with relief. It's just what happens, right? So if you succeed in the first seven seconds, you'll often get a strong signal back, that this person is no longer afraid of you. And in fact, oddly enough, unbeknownst to them, they trust you.
0: Okay. So, cost of negotiation. In other words, sales. I'm reaching out. I have a cold call happening. We've got to change our orientation. We've got to think in terms of the emotional state of person I'm calling, and that person is afraid, right? And they have apprehension. They're uncertain. They have the bone in the ear as opposed to the bone in the nose. So, how do you break through at that point, Chris? How are you creating a situation where we have that Little spike of adrenaline because we're not worried about the person with the bone in their ear.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So the reason we know any of this stuff, by the way, is that at Connect and Cell, we deliver lots of conversations and we use it ourselves. So my team, using our own technology, talks to 85,000 VPs of sales a year. So we ambush 85,000 people that we want to have ultimately be our friends, right? And we do it kind of a lot every day. We do, you know, a lot, right? And so we had to learn ourselves how to do this first conversation. And we didn't know anything more than anybody else did, but we just do so much of it that we got to learn some things. And we got lucky. We stumbled into an opener. And I'm not claiming this is the only opener, but it worked, and it worked so well, we just adopted it. And then Chris Voss told me why it worked. So the opener that we have taught ourselves and that we teach other people is quite unusual, and it sounds like a bunch of stuff that it is not. So people will often say, oh, you're asking permission. That's not what you're doing at all. Actually, you're just helping somebody transition from fear to trust. So the number one thing you do is you throw yourself under the bus, and you've got no time to do it. It's like now. So the easy way to do that is to say what you are, to tag yourself. Tag yourself as a bad thing. So an easy way to do that is to say that you know something, that you agree with this other person. Remember what Chris Voss said, right? Show them you see the world through their eyes. They'll just say, I would say, Doug, I know I'm an interruption, and I'm going to hammer the word no, make you jump a little from it, actually. And you know what? You know I'm an interruption, too. And an interruption is an actual bad thing. I am a bad person. It's not I interrupted you. It's not like, hey, Doug, I realize I may have interrupted your day. I may have caught you at a bad time, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, I'm diving under the bus, and it's going to go thump, 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 and I'm done, right? And then once I say that, now it's really interesting. I've shown you I see the world through your eyes. Now I need to show you that I'm competent to solve a problem you have right now. Well, the beauty is I am the problem. So I know I'm competent to solve the problem. I can just go away. But I know you have a constraint. You wanna get off this call, but you have a constraint. You have your self-image to keep in mind. You can't take an action, especially under time pressure, that sacrifices your self-image. So you wanna keep your self-image intact and get off the call. So you're in a bit of a quandary, Doug. I got you, but you're like, what's gonna happen next? So I'm gonna offer you a solution to that problem. I'm just gonna say, in a playful and curious voice, That's the come along with me voice. Let's go have some fun together. Let's say, so let me do it from the beginning because the switch of voice is the most important part. Doug, I know I'm an interruption. Can I have 27 seconds tell you why I called? No, the reason I say that is I'm not asking may I have 27 seconds. I'm I'm asking a question of fact. And we both know the answer. We both know there's 27 seconds sitting there. You wouldn't have answered the phone, right? You're also kind of thinking, what's up the 27 seconds? That sounds a little specific. Specific means a promise. General means a claim. Claims are always false. But promises we can tell was a promise kept or not kept. So I made a promise. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? And it's specific about something. All I'm gonna do is tell you why I called. And we're done. So you have a solution to your problem. Proposed one. I'm competent to execute it. What's well, my reason I called? I'm going to tell you why I called. And you're out and you've solved your big problem, which is getting off this call with your self image intact. And what you are likely to do, if I say this just right, Doug, I know I'm an interruption. <laughs> Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? You're going to go, yeah, sure, go ahead. And now it's back on me. So you don't have a problem anymore. I've got the problem. I've got to tell you why I called. But I've accomplished the goal of the call already. This is a successful cold call. I'm done. I'm finished. You trust me now. No matter what happens, I just have to not blow it, which means I'm not allowed to sell to you because that's how I'm going to blow it. I have to keep my promise. So I'm going to tell you why I called.
0: So, Chris, interesting. Again, I'm going to take us back to this idea of really efficacy if we can. So give me numbers. How effective is this compared to, say, other cold call openings? As far as we can tell, and it's very hard to A/B test
1: this stuff cleanly because you always get, well, you get a massive amount of Hawthorne effect every time you try to A/B test anything where you tell somebody to say something different. So you train them up, and then it's like, don't do that. <laughs> it's like, oh man, I don't know what I don't even know what my operation is anymore. But what we know is this: when somebody who's been trained on those two sentences who use the correct emotional tones and the right words, the words are very small. The tone is big and the voice is carrying 20,000 bits a second into the midbrain of that other person. That's four emails a second are going in there, right? So it's all emotional information carried by tone of voice. So now the question is, did they blow it in the tone or did they blow it in the words? So we can do natural experiments to listen to folks and see what happens when they change the words. So I have a great one. I have a guy who works for me. He's a big dog AE. Built businesses on his own, err, you know, but he's not comfortable throwing himself under the bus. He's the smartest guy in the room kind of guy. And for him to throw himself all the way under the bus is just too hard. So he swerves at the last millisecond and he says, Doug, I know I'm a bit of an interruption. And boom. So he has the highest hang-up rate. It's called the busy callback rate. But we look at the numbers, and the numbers come out like, you know, how many busy callbacks, how many interested, send information, and so forth. And we have huge, huge, huge volumes of these numbers. And then we look at the numbers, and it's it's like coaching by the numbers. We can coach by the numbers by saying, hey, who has the highest busy callback today, stack ranked. Let's go listen to their opener and see if they need help because we don't want them to groove a bad opener. And so that's how we coach by the numbers. We hold a patent on that, actually, a U.S. patent on using outcome stack ranked in order to identify opportunities for micro-coaching with sales conversations. Well, when we don't coach, so I do it for a while, you watch the numbers, and then the busy callback numbers will spike, and that's the number one indicator that some, and brush-offs and brush off some hang-ups that somebody is using an ineffective opener. So the effectiveness rate, the efficacy rate, is about 92% stay on right when somebody executes as they've been taught to do. It's kind of funny I'm talking about any of this, by the way. We're not in the business of teaching this stuff, but we now have to teach it because we deliver, you know, like we do $60 million a year, all B2B, almost all the senior people. And and what we find is the bottleneck of our whole system is what happens in the first seven seconds of that conversation. So then we came up with this flight school thing and, and we teach it. So we don't get to do proper A-B testing but we actually do something in the world of natural experiments that's probably better, which is precision measurement of outcomes and then back correlating those outcomes. And we also have timings so we can say, well, how long are the conversations, you know, based on this particular execution of the opener. We call this drift when somebody has been trained to do it correctly and they're effective and then they'll drift and they drift for their own emotional reasons. They wanna get away from being the problem. And they also wanna get away from the notion that they're gonna actually just go ahead and solve the problem by saying why they called. They wanna do more, they wanna like sell something. (sighs) I wanna sell something, right? So those two areas cause lots and lots of drift. And then the third area, which is later in the conversation, they're tempted to introduce marketing language. And marketing language kills cold calls every single time. It's guaranteed death. Jargon, in other words. Yeah, and even saying what category of offering you have, because the path that retains trust can't go through value yet. You don't have a relationship with this person in which they're gonna confess their needs, problems, fears, pain, so that you can talk value, which has to be in their context, it's too early to talk value. So you've got to find another, um, another way to go, and the other way is curiosity. Curiosity will get meetings. Value has the problem that you open up this door. The person goes, great, thanks for telling me what you do. They, don't, they say that silently to themselves. But what they'll say to you openly is, thanks, Doug. You know what? We're all set. And that's the most common answer to a badly conducted cold call. And the reason it's badly conducted is you told them what you did, which is insulting to them. You're basically implying you don't know how to do your job. You were waiting for a salesperson to tell you what's worth paying attention to. Well, they don't like that, right? So they push back on it, but they sound happy and relieved. Whenever you get that, we're all set, listen to that tone of voice. They're like, wow, this is great. I'm out. (laughs) Thank you for letting me out the door because you can't answer it. What do you mean you're set? You're not set. I know more than you do about yourself. wait a second, now I'm in trouble. I'm in the third grade playground. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. You can't go there, but that's where everybody goes.
0: Chris, I'm gonna wrap things up here with a final question. And I have to say, I feel like there has been a rush away, not a rush, let's say a trend away from cold calling, primarily because of all the spam that's happening. I think we've all gotten the call from the the spam call from the Mandarin speaking robo service in the back end. So help our listeners understand, would you still lean into cold calling, understanding that really that opener can save the cold calling methodology, or save the overall approach to cold calling?
1: Yeah, to me, I look at it as not cold calling or not cold calling. The real question has to do with the math of go to market and competitive situations. So you're always competing with two big forces in business. And many times salespeople don't think of the biggest force, which is your overhead is like a race force. It's eating your business while you sleep. When you get up to the top of a business and you ask, what are you really worried about? It's that we're gonna have some sort of a, a stall in demand and we're not gonna be able to shed the overhead fast enough and we're gonna go out of business. That's just the way life is, right? So time is one enemy, and then the other enemy is somebody making another decision, because that's a zero sum game. They go and it's not no decision that's that enemy. It's really your real competitors. You have other solutions. So now we're down to time and time because we have to beat the other guy and then we have to go fast enough that the overhead doesn't chomp us up. So what is fast is really the question. So email is really fast for the email openers who open emails, really fast. You can get tons of them out there. But it tends to spike and come down really fast too. So email looks like I don't know, it looks like housing markets in certain circumstances, right? The prices go up, but then they come down faster. The odd thing about cold calling is it works for about 40% of the market. We answer their phones. About 42% of everybody who's in a decision-making capacity actually answer their phones by habit. Different phone numbers, some answer their mobiles, this and that. We know 7 million people and how they answer their phones. So we actually use that information in our business because why not, right? If you had that intel, you would use it. So now the question is, for that part of the market, what kind of competitive advantage am I getting? And the answer is, if you build trust, massive, because the other guy can't come along and displace that trust at a reasonable cost. It just is too hard to displace trust. And we see this in politics. When somebody trusts a candidate, they really mistrust anybody who says bad things about their candidate, right? We mistrust people who try to get us to mistrust people we already trust. And so if you think about it from a competitive standpoint, if you get really good at that seven seconds, you can pave an entire market with trust. And then you harvest it over the three year replacement cycle for whatever it is that you're selling, and you own the market. So that's how I think about cold calling. It's not cold calling, not cold calling. It's like, what has the math behind it that lets you win?
0: Chris, I've learned a lot today. Thanks for joining us. So good to be here. All right. That wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator podcast. Thanks to Chris Beal, CEO at Connect & Sell, for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Chris and I are going to talk about how is corporate strategy tied to sales conversations? If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Chris, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is at Chris8649, or visit his company website at Connect Sell. Dot com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to RevGenPod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is MarketAdvocate.com. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen Strategies in your podcast feed, we'll be publishing an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself.